Malarkey, thank you so much for joining us today. So I really, really appreciate having you on the podcast today. It's, it's really, really great to chat to you. And, you know, we, we'll cover a load of topics uh, on this week's uh, podcast, which is a little bit different for, for us. And, you know, as soon as I took a look at your book, uh, In the Moment, Build Your Confidence, Communication and Creativity at Work, it's just a bit of a no-brainer to have you here. So, so, so thank, thank you so much for, uh, for joining us. Thank you. Well, I hope people will use their brain. Uh, but I know what you mean, because you think, why would an improv performer from the world of comedy and theatre have anything to say to business? But of course, improv is is a skill. It's like a sport. It's like even like a martial art. So it's not just extemporization, just turn up, no plan, no prep. It's a kind of training your brain, your mind, I suppose, to be ready for situations of uncertainty, which are really helpful dealing with people chatting and also as your listeners hopefully will be thinking how do i apply this to business in a world of uncertainty so that's why i've managed to get people to pay me to come and talk to them for the last 20 plus years yeah no like you said you've been doing it for a while and you know you've you've got a, you've had a great career yourself uh, outside of your speaking could you just for, for people who may not immediately recognize the name could you just give us a little bit of an overview of your career to date Definitely. So I wanted to be a doctor when I did my A-levels, physics, chemistry, maths. And then I was in the school play ah, and my head was turned. I found it was great fun to make people laugh. So I went to Cambridge University. I was president of the Footlights, which is a, a comedy group that people have been Emma Thompson, Hugh Laurie, uh, Olivia Coleman, uh, Monty Python. And I was studying economics and social science. And eventually I admitted to my family that I wanted to do comedy. Luckily, got my equity card. We toured Australia. I met a man called Mike Myers, who's Shrek and Austin Powers and Wayne of Wayne's World. But he wasn't in those days. He was just somebody who arrived in Canada. But he taught me improv skills. So I then spent time being a writer, performer, being on the radio, Radio 4 here in the UK, quote unquote, the news quiz, some TV, uh, whose line is it anyway, in commercials, uh, some sitcoms and so forth. But what I was gradually realizing, the thing I loved was doing this improv. So Mike Myers and I had formed the Comedy Store Players. And that was 1985, before you were even born, Josh. And that was uh, that continues every Sunday. We still do that. But it was kind of a, a question for me when I got to the turn of the century. Do I want to be a comedian forever? Do I want to be pitching ideas for the BBC? And they kind of say, yeah, no, maybe, whatever. Or going for commercials as an actor, or whatever, he's not quite right, not feeling in control of my destiny. And I found there was a kind of hunger for what I was offering. Uh, people sort of came to me and I gradually saying, oh yeah, I wanna do that. I thought, should I do an MBA? No, people said you could do training. So having been in a couple of Austin Powers, cause I was still friendly with Mike, uh, people are quite excited about that, but also I have got a strong business message, which is how do we work better together? Creativity, collaboration, People are crying out for that. So while I can talk about Radio 4 and movies and telly and theatre, I loved there were moments of theatre where I was in um, Charlie's Art with Christopher Biggins, Eric Sykes. Uh, I've been in, in shows with Dawn French, Ed Izzard, Sheila Hancock. Those are great moments upon which to draw. How do we bring some of those skills and that ethos to bear in the real world, as it were, where business is running nine to five or eight to eight. How do we think of ourselves as a collective, borrow the skills, the rehearsal skills of, of a play, the improv skills of the, the comedy store players? So that's basically what I've been doing. And then, as you said, I wrote a book, which is kind of an essay crisis that's been hanging over me for 20 plus years. 
when people say, well, how can you explain what you do? And I, is there a book? Here's the book. At last, I've done it. And it's and it's a brilliant book. I'd highly recommend it to everyone for sure. And you know, if we just go over the last kind of you know two decades, you mentioned you know some of your corporate clients: Barclays Capital, Google, Microsoft, Vodafone, the NHS. I mean, some of some of the clients that you've worked with are absolutely brilliant. But I want to go back to the genesis of that. At what point did you say this message was that was there a specific moment that was like what I'm saying is a message that could be passed on to businesses? I think there was. March 1998, I was asked to go to Bury St. Edmunds, which is a beautiful city in Suffolk, uh, the east of England. And there's a wonderful theatre, the Theatre Royal, the Frank Matcham Theatre, which there are many around the country, but they're really beautiful theatres, one of my favourites. And they'd found a budget <laughs> to pay for three comedy practitioners to come and talk to the local amateur dramatic society. It was Prunella Scales, who you might know from Faulty Towers. There was Jimmy Cricket. Uh, a funny Irish guy with Wellington boots. He used to wear on his left foot a boot saying R and vice versa. And they had me, because so they had kind of acting comedy, they had joke comedy, and they had improv. And I got there early and I thought, how am I going to help this? I know, uh, I got, uh, people come in one by one, come into my little room and say, and I say, what's the secret of improv? And I'd hand them a piece of paper saying, listening. And there, that night, I was just talking about the skills of improv, how we make it work, on the stage. And in the group, there were lawyers, agricultural workers, drama students, sixth formers. And I could see how they warmed to this as an ethos of, isn't it really powerful to work together? And that's what improv is about, is accepting what the other person says. We talk about the offer. She's just said this. He's just said that. Let me use that. That wasn't my idea. And in the same way, I throw back an offer to her, to him, and that was kind of a moment for me where I thought, actually, this is application beyond the stage. And it was also, there was a bit of push and pull because it was around that time I was doing, looking into other businesses or other worlds. And I was thought I might do an MBA and I did the GMAT. I wonder how many of your listeners have done the GMAT. Josh, have you ever heard of it? I have not. Guilty. <laughs> Graduate Management Aptitude Test. So it's taken all over the world online uh so you it's you do maths you do a uh, english they're kind of multiple choice and you write some essays and i did really well in these and i thought if i can do that well i don't need to join their club like groucho marks i oh, don't want to join the club if you have me but it was one of those things where writing the essays uh it was very simple things things like your the finance director is about to be promoted to managing director would you invest in this company that was that's kind of logic, isn't it? You know, yes, if they understand how much were they actually doing, were they really just finance? Actually, have they shown experience here? Is it the sector that they've got some experience of? But, you know, this kind of stuff, I thought that's going to help. I went to see a barrister because I thought being a barrister here in the UK, you kind of get on your feet and you stand in court with a wig on. And he, he said to me, oh, I love acting. I do amateur <laughs> dramatics. So I'm thinking the grass is always greener. He was envying me and I was envying him. And so gradually, gradually, this push and pull, my wife went to a hen night, can you imagine, at a McKinsey partner sitting next to a communication person, management consultancy. She was saying, we need an improviser. We've had Shakespearean actors teaching them how to project. But actually, much of our life is dealing with tough crowds where it's more improv. The audience giving suggestions and the client saying this, and you haven't prepared a script for that. Another one was Saatchi and Saatchi. Uh, the advertising agency where, by chance, they rang my voiceover agent, don't know why, um, and said, we've seen this guy on the stage. We think he'd be good to help us. 
with a pitch. We're, we're, we're pitching for Visa, the, um, the, the credit card. Can he do 20 minutes stand-up comedy on credit cards? Luckily, I'd spoken to my voice agent about what I wanted to do. And she'd have experience in this world of training. And she said to them, first of all, you can't just magic stand-up comedy out of, out of nowhere. Secondly, one topic, 20 minutes, you're mad. What you really want is to encourage the creativity of your strategy people who may be thinking about spreadsheets and stuff. And they want to bring up, how do we make this live for the client? And improv, dealing with questions, that pitch, where it's not just a script. And so that's what I did. Those are my first two clients, Saatchi and Saatchi and McKinsey. I was bold enough to, uh, in the papers, I saw somebody from Templeton College, Oxford, which is now part of Said Business School. And they wrote a piece about how they'd had a poet for one of their sessions. And I thought, if you can have a poet, you can have me. I'm not as left field as that. When I'm talking in the currency of organizations, basically language, how do we have better conversations? How do we build on each other's contribution? How does compliance relate to sales? How does IT understand marketing rather than be in their silos? That was kind of it. So I gradually, gradually got some clients uh, working with those three particular organizations spent their they would talk to others, they would talk to others. One of my very first, actually, students in the McKinsey workshop is called Matt Britton, who's now the head of Google, EMEA, Europe, Middle East, Asia. And he recently interviewed me for Google. But I, you know, I didn't know how much um, I was sort of sending out there where people were saying, ah, this is the thing we need. We can handle the technical stuff. But here's kind of, I'm giving people... Um, a method, a praxis, dare I say, which is kind of how do you put practice into practice some theory? It's kind of a habit, a mindset. Every time you have a conversation, you're thinking, this is a moment where I can be present. I can pick up something from this colleague, direct report, supplier, client, rather than just sticking to a script, we could learn something together. And that was kind of the ethos. And so many people get to the point, and this is where I coach individuals, they're pretty good at the technical stuff. And suddenly they've got to be a partner or director or they've got to be entrepreneurial or they've got to be a managing partner in professional services or law firms. And suddenly a whole new horizon opens up, which is how do I deal with people? People don't follow the rules. They're not like spreadsheets. And so that was it. When I realized I had something to offer, um, which was necessary, but not necessarily covered in most communication training. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and again, just kind of sticking at that kind of early jobs or the early jobs that you you, you, you started. Um, I mean, effectively, your, your job is to be as comfortable as possible in an uncomfortable situation. Because I mean, you know, improv is just, like you said, with the, you know, with the players, it's, it's different every single night. You know, every time you're doing it, it's completely different. But I don't know if you can remember a specific moment when you first stood in front of your first corporate client going like, right, what the hell do I do now? Was there a little bit of imposter syndrome, which is something that is obviously very prevalent, not just in business, in, in everything. But, you know, can you can you remember that kind of first time you stood on stage in front of that? I, I can. And, and uh, any entrepreneur will tell you this, which is you're kind of asking for investment, for time, for buy in, for support, for um, help in supply or being a customer. And you, and you think, is my product worth it? So what I did, as any entrepreneur would do, I did lots of homework. I talked a lot to the person who'd organized the event 
tell me, guide me, what is it that these people in this room are looking for? What will they warm to? What are the situations where they'll need my product? And that was really helpful. And I, and I, I got my blurb right. Because uh, it, it's not always an easy read across, especially for some people, where they say, what's this guy whose only job is to be funny with other people, got to do with us who are doing utilities or massive tech things or um, retail? And I'm saying it's basically the same thing. How conversations creating story. And I was, I was a bit scared. So how did I get over it? I did it by preparing both kind of uh, the applications and also the moments I would do. Uh, so the first thing I did with Thames Water, this was Thames Water had just become no longer publicly owned. And one of the scenarios they would do later in the week was what if we were taken over by RWE, German Water Company, which they were eventually and now Many years down the line, they've been taken over. We need say no more. But it was one of those moments where I had, I think, had an hour and a half after dinner, Sunday night. I was there cleverly by uh, Templeton saying, this is a useful moment for people to get to know each other, uh, have some kind of fun together, but also start the idea of the improv, yes, and. How in the week will they start working with each other rather than sitting on their hands or sitting across uh, with, with going, you know, this is not for us, or uh, I don't care what he says, I'm sticking to my point of view. And so I, I kind of, I had 10 minute chunks. And of course, as I got more confident over the years, I would loosen my agenda. So I don't have imposter syndrome any moment, anymore, because I've learned how applicable this stuff is. And actually I've learned from the audiences, from the participants, they, they're the ones telling me, gosh, we could use the S and what I've got a five uh, letter, um, acronym. And one of them is, it says laser. It's listen, accept, send an offer back, building on the offer you heard. E for explore assumptions. Some people say that's really powerful. I'm in a conversation. I had a whole idea of what they're thinking and I'm wrong. <laughs> um, so I need to explore what is it they, they're really thinking. And of course, that's very much in professional services. For example, the client comes with this and actually you discover it's that or something that they haven't quite articulated, haven't even thought that's the real issue, the customer pain point, if you like. So imposter syndrome, yes, I've got over it, but I still have a tiny, tiny bit of it, which means I really work hard to plan, talk to my client at length. What is it you're really asking me to do? Can I talk to a participant? And she will tell me, actually, Neil, I'm a lawyer. I need this. Actually, I'm a management consultant. I need that. Hey, we're a new tech startup. We need to be able to tell our story to these people. Hey, we've got to deal with private equity. Um, hey, we've got to really communicate. But in the moment when we haven't got a script because we're doing Q&A or a pitch that can vary in the agenda. So I'm always working hard. And then the first 10 minutes, yes, they might... <laughs> there will be a sense of what's this got to do with anything. Um, so uh, because I'm used to working with audiences, I know you've got to plant the seed in those first five, 10 minutes of this guy knows what he's doing. We're safe in his hands. He's going to challenge us a bit. It'll be a little uncomfortable, uncomfortable enough to make us think and learn and move, but not so uncomfortable that we feel exposed. Um, and of course, my greatest joy is by the end, somebody who was a little bit, like this, sitting back, 
they're the ones right at the front saying, this is what I've learned. This is how I'm going to apply it. Mm. I, I'm really intrigued as you're kind of talking there about people's journeys. Like you mentioned, those people going from the sitting back and almost reclusive to you know, being being the stars of the show, if you will. But as far as the 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 individual leaders you work with, have you had? Obviously, not mentioning any names, I'm sure you wouldn't anyway. But have you have you had a leader going? You know what? This is actually exactly what I needed because I think everyone's worked with a boss who doesn't quite listen to what anyone says, and I, I think that yes, and is so powerful. Have you had a really open conversation with someone post one of your sessions and just being like, you know what? This has actually changed the game for real. Yes, absolutely. And that's why I, my book is based a lot on what they've said to me. And my five letter thing is they really said, actually, I didn't realize I wasn't listening. I didn't realize I wasn't accepting offers. Um, I didn't realize the power, the R is to actually to recycle, to reincorporate, we say, something that somebody else said. Isn't it powerful when you play that back to a member of your team? That was your idea. How can I move it forward? Or a, or a pitching situation, playing back what the customer said. Um, so definitely I've had people say, I didn't realize that I was closed-minded. I also um, mix it up a bit because I say sometimes improv isn't the thing. As a leader, you need to tell people what to do. And I have a lovely little management model borrowed from Ralph Stacey, the University of Hertfordshire, which kind of talks about the moments when improv is it, when you need to be open and fluid and flexible. And there are times when the leader, and some find this hard, has to be able to answer the question. Uh, she or he says, I know this, I've been here before, or we don't have time, we don't have budget, this is how it's going to be. And one of my greatest influences is Herminia Ibarra, Professor Herminia Ibarra of London Business School, who says, yeah, there are sometimes you've got to be directive, <laughs> but you've got to have kind of invested by being a more empathetic leader. If you're directive the whole time, people will turn off. But there are times if you've done 12 yes ands, you can do one yes but, shall we say, because <laughs> um, they'll, they'll trust you. If you keep saying, this is what it is, let me do it, I'm my way or the highway, stick to my script, people will stop bother, bothering with their office. They won't come to you with ideas and options. They'll just do as they're told and go home at five o'clock. Uh, then that sort of psychological contract will be lost because actually I don't want just your body for five, eight hours. I want your mind and your intelligence and your creativity, uh, even your fallibility when you're feeling unsure that you want to share that with me. But the other thing I, I, you were kind of asking is I'm often asked by a senior leader to work with somebody they see as high potential. They're really good at the technical stuff. And the next step up is almost to jettison some of that or to hold it lightly so that they can be seen as a more human figure. I was going to say empathetic. That sounds that's one aspect, approachable, but also more confident in the C-suite, more confident in the client boardroom, not just relying on slides, not just relying on technical talk. But this was one of my clients working with private equity. He said, I need to train my people to walk in the room because they're going to say to their client, their private equity or other investing client, you've got to give, we recommend you're going to invest 20 million in this project. Now, you don't want to shuffle in mumbling, <laughs> looking uneasy, hiding behind a spreadsheet. 
You want to be able to come in, own the room, own the space. This is what I talk a lot about is, and it's not lying. It's not inauthentic. Uh, and I often point out, if you give an actor the script, you might say, they could do a pretty good job of it. Better than you, perhaps, but they can't do the real job and uh, questions they'd fail. But think about it for those moments of what's the impression you want to give, unconscious and conscious. Uh, be in the room. Be confident to say 20 million. Be confident when somebody asks you a tricky question to say, we don't know. We're going to answer that in a couple of days or tomorrow or tonight. And that's the thing often it is, is that nothing too much in our education system trains you for a tricky question, um, trains you to work with others. Most exams are one person on their own doing a thing, whereas most, most business is collaboration, help, um, ducking and diving, <laughs> offering a, a, some advice to somebody else, uh, pleading for advice for someone, uh, getting buy into your project from that very busy person. Like for example, today, I think we have Lee in the background if Lee was to fall asleep, he's got his finger on the record button. If he was to fall asleep, we'd be wasting our time. But that kind of thing of any endeavor requires more than one person. It may require hundreds of people. How do you get buy-in? You don't get buy-in just by getting an A star in your uh, further maths A level. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, what? everyone's watched Mock the Week. Everyone's watched Whose Line Is It Anyway? And all these great examples of improv. But you know, naturally, you know, humor is associated with that. But, you know, part of, I think, great communication is like you mentioned, having those very difficult conversations um, in a way where you truly listen and, you know, are empathetic and take into account. How, how many times do you go into sessions and people go, oh, that's actually a lot more than just humor. It's a lot more than just what I thought it was going to be. All the time. They, they think I'm just coming in and I do just team build. Let's have some fun together. I'll do some funny exercises. And then I slip in the learning. Yes, absolutely. They didn't realize there's a whole kind of philosophy here. There's a load of leadership models that um, tune into what I'm saying. And it's interesting that before I arrived at Ashridge Business School, now part of HALT and EF, they were doing a lot about how organizations are like jazz. You know, there's soloing, there's um, keeping the rhythm going. There's somebody running with a disrupted rhythm. There's um, the leader listening or conducting. They might be playing. They may be just keeping the rhythm going. And of course, the problem is most people don't know how to play music or particularly like improvised jazz. So I'm giving them a thing which is fun and then saying, do you know that this improv thing has its own drills and ethos and the yes and thing and the idea of the offer and there's there's many more you know things like make the other person look good you wouldn't think that was a comedy thing and just to pick up what you said there mock the week and i hope i'm not being rude uh is not improvised there are moments of ad lib but it's cleverly constructed and that's what i also would say sometimes people should rehearse for a Q&A, should rehearse for a job interview, should rehearse for that heading to partner moment. Um, not so that they can just mouth meaningless answers to a question that's not asking that, but so for the bits they do need to be on top of it, they are, and for the bits they need to improvise and, and listen to the question, they're ready for that as well. So it's kind of, these are perhaps two parts of the brain. 
So whose line is it anyway is is improvised and Clive Anderson is there or Drew Carey is to remind us that it's made up on the spot. And it's a different thing. Um, so that's the the thing I'm trying to say is sometimes you need to be rehearsed and scripted. You're the CEO. You're doing a five minute wrap up at the end of the day. Don't just turn up. And I've seen this and I mentioned in my book, somebody mumbling from the back of an envelope, a few thoughts. And you go away going, really? Is that what we're aspiring to? Whereas I've seen CEOs give brilliant presentations. They've rehearsed it. They've got slides that don't have any numbers on them, just pictures. They tell stories. They admit fallibility. And I'm looking around the audience going, this is a great investment. 300 people or 500 people in the audience are going, yeah, we will follow her. And it was a her for that on that occasion uh, to the ends of the earth because she has taken the trouble. So that's kind of what I'm saying to people um, is, is prepare what you need to prepare, be open to possibility. And your, your point about humor, yes, because people think humor is frivolous, not real work, but how often in the moment, if we have got humor, we've got trust. And counterintuitively, my improv ethos creates psychological safety because it, it admits failure, it enjoys risk, we share the risk. We listen. We value the contribution from any member of the team. It's not just the boss. But equally, the boss could step in when she feels the music needs a different rhythm. So I do have a whole chapter on humor in the book, and I try and make a difference between what, I, what they call affiliative humor, which is we're in this together. Uh-oh, it's gone wrong. Oh, remember that time I made a mess? The leader's saying, oh, gosh, when I was 25, I did this, but I've come through it. All of which are about kind of taking a wry look at life. Uh, even things in an email, just have a funny PS. It doesn't have to be gags, huge gag. Just, you know, oops, I'm still struggling with that spreadsheet. Oops, that coffee I spilt, I managed to pick it up. Or that Amazon delivery you heard me go and get. Yes, it's the new uh, Peloton or whatever. On the other hand, there's disaffiliative humor, which is, oh, I hate IT. Oh, compliance, aren't they rubbish? Oh, have you heard about Josh? He's this, he's that, which is bullying. Banter, bants sometimes can be bullying. It's outgrouping somebody, saying they're other than us. And it's hard to call that out, mm. to be a whistleblower, to say, why are we creating division? And um, I, it might sound hippie and huggy to say humor is uh, unifying, but humor as I express it as affiliative rather than laughing at somebody. We can laugh at ourselves, we can laugh at the situation, we can laugh at our past mistakes. But if we create division, then it feels like that's not humor. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, yes, remote work and hybrid work has always been a part of the world. But, you know, March 2020 changed things for a lot of companies who'd never worked remotely and a lot of people who were getting used to this new dynamic. And it's something you so brilliantly touched on in your book about really making, I think everyone has been on a on, on a Zoom call or, you know, the Teams call and just like, oh, you're on mute, you know, the, the usual stuff, like oh, I'm just sitting there with my camera off and stuff like that. But you come up with real ways to keep, to keep people engaged who are working remotely and you know how how have you kind of adapted your own practice as far as taking things remotely and, and helping people really connect with you know people that may be on the other side of the country other side of the world that they've never met but really have a deeper connection to them which of course it just improves their business as a whole well first of all it's changed the mindset which is people say oh we can't do it face to face what a shame i go 
this is the world we're in now. It's hybrid. You might be in the office three days. You might be in the office one day. You might be five days. But you will be on remote, on Zoom, on Teams, on StreamYard, Google video calls, uh, Amazon Chime, Blue Jeans. You may be on any or all of those teams, the one I loathe. Um, but in March 2020, somebody told me about Zoom and breakout rooms. That really helped me in the workshop environment. And I said things like, can I stand up? Yes. Yeah. So now I make people, when they're presenting, stand up. So that means they've got to raise the laptop, uh, think about the lights. I don't want to see up your nose. I don't want to see your face in silhouette because there's a window behind you. So there's some technical stuff. Speak up as well. Don't be in a room with metal and wood because it's really, really echoey. Don't have those headsets that make you sound like you're a World War II pilot. <laughs> and the number of people who still have them, and I'll call them out and they say, really? Why didn't somebody tell me a year ago? Um, sometimes the headset's worse than the laptop camera or mic uh, you have there anyway. But I tend to think of every remote meeting, think of it as this is a chance to connect, to have energy. So I get uh, suggestions for how can we uh, keep it as short as possible, i.e., let's have an agenda. Can we do this not as a meeting, but as a shared document or as an email or as a phone call so I can go for a walk? If we do have to have a meeting, who has to be there? Could they be there for some of the time? Then go. Um, can we record some of it? Maybe if that's going to be helpful. Um, can we use all the channels here? Because a remote, a virtual meeting is a bit like television, a bit like radio, a bit like a real meeting and a bit like sending texts. So you've got the chat and you've got gallery view. If you are a good facilitator, you're trying to bring in voices that aren't just your own. So things like get everyone to speak early. A quiet person, the longer we don't speak, the long, longer we won't speak. It's harder if you've had a, you think, I must say something. Oh, no, I can't. It gets harder and harder. So get everyone to say, hello, where are you? I do things like, where are you? And Josh, I believe you're in the Western Supermare. Um, I think you're in a well-appointed sort of um, high-rise apartment, perhaps, <laughs> or something. And so things like that. And because uh, I can, I, I could do comedy. I say, what have you got on your feet? Anything? Slippers? Uh, what's on your mind today? What do you have for breakfast? Just kind of get a bit of that because the research says get the social connection going and the task will be easier. The research I read from teams who'd actually been working virtually for years before 2020. So think of it not with a grudge, but also say things like, I can see your face better than I could around a board table. Uh, I could send you a WhatsApp video before or after just to say, this is what we're up to. Hello, looking forward to meeting you. Or this is what we agreed. Or actually, you know that Rick Astley record we mentioned? Here it is. Something like that. To, to do what we're doing in our social life, do it in business life. Why not? Certain people I know don't like typing. So they'll send me a video, a sound message. Some, and that means I can stop and replay and I can type it or write it or listen to it. So use the medium more imaginatively rather than thinking, oh, I'll just turn my laptop on. Um, and do my normal thing sort of thing, or I won't turn the camera on even though I can check whatever's going on in, in emails. I've got three screens. I'm not even looking at the one where the camera is. Again, that that feels like a disconnect. And now, Josh, you can feel I'm, I look not at you, but at the camera. I check you everything out now and again in, in case you're doing something I'm scared of, but mostly my energy is trying to be through the camera, even though we're mostly audio here. Things like that, that kind of, you, if you learn, to have a go at that, people say, oh, you were looking at me. It felt like you were looking at me. 
Um, and so if I'm thinking about some of the entrepreneurs who might be listening to this, the pitch is helpful. If you can send some stuff in advance, uh, have a phone call with somebody on the client team so that the actual moment is as polished and energized as possible. So the bits you need to rehearse, rehearse them. So, for example, some of the people I, I prepare for partner interviews, they've got a whole bunch of post-it notes behind the laptop <laughs> uh, just in case to remind them. I must get that in, must get that in. That's fine. So don't look down and have your notes uh, on the desk because you lose eye contact. Um, one person, uh, great uh, body language expert, suggests you have a little post-it note above the camera with two dots and a mouth, the smiley face, because it means you smile. So, because otherwise we're all a bit, blah, a bit frowny on teams. So there's kind of the technical things and there's the sense of as a leader. Uh, and this was another thing I picked up from Ashridge who asked a lot of leaders, what are you doing during lockdown? And they would tend to say we were doing more emotional, personal stuff than technical stuff. Uh, and how do we as a leader check in without checking up? How do we, and, and this is the, the challenge for people who are on video calls from 8 a.m. to 8 p.m. How do we have moments of openness where, first of all, I can have a no agenda chat with somebody where ideas may come, where emotional truths may come through. And also, how do I give myself time to just go for a walk and think? Otherwise, I'm on email or video all day, which is exhausting emotionally and physically. So I say put in Project Malarkey or Project Rainbow where you go for a walk. Or even that meeting, sometimes have it on a phone call or FaceTime and even turn the, the phone around so that they're seeing what you're seeing. Oh, look, there's a dog there. Oh, there's a park. That's fun sometimes as well. So you're not feeling looked at all day. Yeah. There's, there's so many great takeaways there that I'm sure people would have not even thought about. So yeah, no, that's brilliant. And I'm sure there's loads more in the book, which people can obviously read, but you know, you, you've, you're almost like the, the, you've got a perfect sample size with everyone that you've chatted to over the years of, you know, where, where businesses and where leaders need to work a little bit more. Is there kind of one characteristic or one kind of work on that you think is, is key that's kind of consistent across most of the, of, of the companies you've, you've worked with or individuals? It's probably obvious, which is just think about the people. Think about yourself. You're not a machine. Think about the organization as more than an org chart. Think about that person, the receptionist that we all trust. What's her role, his role? Uh, that senior person who feels um, above it all. <laughs> think about the politics with a small p. How's the gossip going? How approachable are you? If you're senior, every time you move through the environment, people will think, what are they thinking? And this was a piece of advice that I was passed on to me by Jimmy Mulville, who uh, of Hattrick Productions, who made Whose Line Is Anyway, Have I Got News For You, and many other TV shows. Uh, he heard the former head of radio, BBC Radio 4, and his advice to his uh, successor was, Every day, go in a different entrance. And that's not always possible with certain organizations, but just bump into people. There's that entrance. There's the back entrance. There's the front entrance. There's the, uh, you know, the west entrance or whatever. Just be around more. Just so that if somebody does have an idea, they can mention it to you, or you're just somewhere present. You're not just in the ivory tower. And I did this, uh, I suggested this once to somebody at a very big construction firm, 
Uh, and he said, what? Why should I walk around? People don't want to see me. <laughs> I'm thinking, you represent so much more than yourself. Just being around is there. And I always ask things like, um, physically, how separate are the leadership? And that may be helpful sometimes, but how much better is their coffee machine than everyone else's? Um, how do people feel when they're called to the third floor? Um, and the other piece of advice one from the BBC Radio 4 boss called David Hatch was every day, try and write a handwritten note to somebody to say how well they did. Now, nowadays, handwritten notes is not so easy, but just a phone call, a text, a WhatsApp, an email saying, I noticed you did this and it was helpful because it was above and beyond. I knew it's not your thing, but you helped out. Gosh, that was fantastic. Something like that that says a, a sense, a positive thing. And this is, uh, again, I mentioned some of the schools of therapy that I work alongside and, and, and steal from. Solutions Focus, which looks at organizations said, what's going well? Let's do more of that rather than problems focus. What needs to be fixed? Which again, has a creative, uh, that creates a negative spiral of energy. And so one of their things is positive gossip. <laughs> Try and find things to say that are upbeat. Try and notice positivity because as soon as you start saying it, you'll notice more and people will try and step up to that. That's the main thing, I suppose, is think about the people. I, I'm going to say that many jobs, the technical side, you can give to somebody or learn enough. But the thing that molds a team, a culture, is how they talk to each other. And um, we can role model that in a senior position but also my, my book has a chapter on leadership. I've called it leadership mindset because we're all leaders in a way. Um, even if I've only got one person who looks up to me and I can lead my boss actually sometimes by showing her or him that I'm listening, that I'm prepared to take on board their, their ideas. So it's the human thing and maybe even just one word, listen. It's now time for a very special segment. We've teamed up with the Jill Dando News Centre to bring you the Good News Postcard. Neil, your question today comes from Henne, age 12. I'm Henne from, from the King Alfred School Academy, and I would like to ask you a question. What was the highest point in your career, the lowest point in your career, and how did you get through it? Henne, what a great question. Do you know what? I can't think of the lowest point. I, it's, I blocked it out. Maybe that's how I got through it. The highest point, I've had many high points. I think one high point would be the first time I taught improvisation, the improv skills that I use on the stage at the comedy store to business people. And they got it. Another point, and teaching it to school children, they're saying, yes, we can play. It's okay to play with others. It's okay to use their ideas and share my ideas with them. I think the low point, might have been a long time ago, I turned down a television program that became very, very famous. And I thought, that's a shame. And you know what? Years later, I think, if I had done that, I couldn't have done this. And that has perhaps helped me and might help you is if that door closes, there's gonna be another door that opens if you listen out and share your possibilities with other people. Henne, I hope that's answered your question. 
That is a great answer to a great question. Thank you very much, Neil. And uh, our kind of final question for you is, obviously, we are business leaders, so we have to ask you the question. You've given us so many great nuggets of information already, but what to you makes a great business leader? I think a great business leader probably has a sense of humor. They don't have to be making jokes, but they have to be able to laugh at themselves and with others. Not saying jokes, but kind of having that perspective that humor brings. Uh, they probably have the capacity to recognize brilliance in others and notice when somebody's really good at something and let them do that, applaud them for doing it. Uh, I think that might be it. Yeah, no, that's that's a really great point. And uh, we'll, we'll just ask for kind of final words, if you have any for our audience. And also, where can people pick up your brilliant book in the moment? So I hope you've understood a little bit about what the improv mindset is that I'm talking about. It, it's, it's a way of approaching the world that says, I don't know the answers necessarily. Um, there are times when I'm in unscripted moments, and there I could learn something, I could find an opportunity, I could work with somebody that I haven't met. There's something there that's an opening that I hadn't expected, perhaps. And my book is called In the Moment. And it's available on Amazon. It's available from Kogan Page. If you go to neilmalarkey.com slash in the moment, you'll find the 20% discount code. Press on the button which says buy now and get 20% off. Why wouldn't you do that? Of course, you can buy loads of them for your company if you want. We can customize if you like. Ooh, what excitement. <laughs>